Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, good to see you all here. It's very difficult to know from this vantage point who you all are. I recognize many faces, and I know pe some people have traveled some distance to be here tonight. I don't want to single people out, but it's good to welcome our visitors from Coldstream, uh, which is across the border, of course. Scottish border, I mean. Um, so good to see you, and also folk have come from far and wide from the, from the Tyneside area, so good to see you here tonight. I'd like you to turn to the Word of God tonight, and we look together in the New Testament, in the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, and chapter 7, beginning to read from verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning to read at verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was called and when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble us. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's bond freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called in Christ's, is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation which God has called him to. This is the very word of God, and we ask that the Lord will bless his word and the preaching and the exposition of his word to his glory. And I'd like to begin by setting before you two completely different world views. I apologize in advance for the second. It is offensive, but it is very common. The first I came across some years ago when our family was in the Rocky Mountains in North America. And as we got out of the car with our hosts and looked around at the stupendous panorama of mountains stretching for tens of miles in every direction, I was moved to start spouting romantic nonsense. And I said, don't these mountains make us seem very, very small? One of our hosts was an elderly Christian lady, a very astute and theologically aware lady, and she said, but Ted, they were made for us. And the balloon of my romantic nonsense immediately collapsed. The other world view is that of Bart Simpson. He was asked to give thanks for a meal and he said, Dear God, we pay for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Two different world views. The first world view of human beings ruling in a world provided for them by God, 
and responsible to God. The other view, humans as rulers in their own world. And if there is a God, he is away in the irrelevant distance and they are responsible only to themselves. The popularity of the second view explains much that is wrong in our world. The recovery of the first view may save our civilization. Our subject this evening is God's calling. God's calling in the New Testament is supremely his calling to salvation, his calling to Christ and to newness of life. But it is wider than that. God's calling includes his rule over us and his claim upon us. John Calvin in book three of his institutes entitles chapter 10, How We Must Use the Present Life and Its Helps. And section six of that chapter is entitled, The Lord's Calling as the basis of our way of life. And in that section he writes, The Lord bids us in all of life's actions to look to his calling. The Lord's call is in everything the beginning and the foundation of well-doing. This expression, calling, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is confronting the problem of super-spiritual, restless, new Christians. They believe that because they have been changed, everything in their lives has to change. They have been made new creatures. So then perhaps they need a new husband or a new wife. The slave needs to be set free. The circumcised needs to be uncircumcised. I'm a new man. My whole life has to be new. The circumstances of it. And Paul is arguing against that. He says in verse 24, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. With God, be a Christian where you are. Be a new person where you are. Don't run away from your responsibilities. Transform them by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And he expands it in verse 20. Literally, each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. Gordon Fee comments, by calling a person within a given situation, that situation itself is taken up in his call. So our calling is widened by Paul to include our whole lives. All of them are for the service of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the Christian's calling. One of the early Puritans, William Perkins, says, Our calling is a certain manner of leading our lives in this world. There's a great deal of material available on this. Uh, For those of you who are interested in studying it further, could I quickly mention four modern works and two older works. Recent writers, Leland Riken, Redeeming the Time, A Christian Approach to Work and Leisure. Jean Edward Veith, God at Work, Your Christian Vocation, in all of life. Oz Guinness, 
The Call and Nancy Piercy, Total Truth. Of older works, we have the Puritan writers, George Swinnock, The Christian Man's Calling. I should alert you to the fact that it's 1,250 pages, but delightful to read. Or Richard Baxter, A Christian Directory, one and a quarter million words. Or if my maths are correct, 1,234,415 words. No, I just made that last bit up. (laughs) It's about one and a quarter million words. It's an enormous subject. I can only skim the surface this evening. But I want to do so by four key texts. And to look at these key texts in turn. The first is Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Every human being is an image bearer of God. That image has been defaced by the fall, but it has not been lost. Theologians debate as to exactly what the image of God involves. But the context makes clear at least one aspect of the image, and it's only one aspect. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. As as God's image bearer, man has dominion over the created world. He is to care for it, to use it, to develop its potential. Here we have the beginnings of agriculture, of technology, of science, of fine arts. Man in God's image entrusted with ruling, subduing the creation. This is the relevance of the image of God. For the God we meet on the first page of the Bible is a worker, a God who does things, who works with the material stuff of creation. The fourth commandment speaks not only of God's one day of rest, but of God's six days of work. God is a creative worker, a constructive worker, an orderly worker. And human beings are designed and called to follow him In this, as a worker, God also has an aesthetic sense. The creation is an extravagant profusion of beauty and variety. It is not simply functional. We are told that in Eden was every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There's no profit in monetary terms in the trees being pleasant to the sight. But our God created them that way. Not only does God work and have an aesthetic sense, but God enjoys leisure. He reflects with delight on his work. He looks at creation and contemplates it. He saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. We're told in Exodus thirty-one seventeen that on the seventh day he rested 
and was refreshed. So image bearers of God are workers. We have an aesthetic sense. We create and we appreciate beauty. Isn't it interesting to read about Bezalel? One of the first of whom we are told, God said, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Exodus 31, 2 following. How did Bezalel demonstrate the filling of the Spirit? With ability and intelligence with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in every craft. So human beings are created in the image of God to work, to create beauty, and also, and I find this enormously encouraging, we are created to rest and to sit and to be economically unproductive. Consider the lilies of the field. So when you are sitting, doing nothing, but considering the lilies of the field, and I mean this seriously, we are being godlike. So the created world was good in itself. Not evil, as too often is suggested in distortions of Christianity. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The Bible knows nothing of setting the spiritual against the material as enemies. The heavenly against the earthly. The sacred against the secular. To try to escape from the created world is not a mark of superior spirituality. It is in fact sin. For the earth is our God-appointed sphere for service. And I'm struck by the physicality of first Corinthians 10.31 Paul doesn't say whether therefore you preach or philosophize or write poems pigs eat dogs eat and Paul brings these super spiritual Corinthians down to that level and says whether therefore you eat or drink the most basic, if you like, animal, human functions. They can be done to the glory of God. In other words, he's saying everything. This has wide-ranging implications. Since creation is good in itself, good work is work that is in harmony with creation, that respects its integrity, that explores its meaning. Work, in other words, doesn't need to be coated with a so-called religious veneer to make it worthwhile. A good building is not an ugly building with a neon text flashing on the side of it. It is a well-designed, well-constructed, beautiful building. Good music is music that is orderly and harmonious and melodious. And some so-called Christian music is wretched music. Good painting is not necessarily about saints with halos. Isn't it interesting the change in painting at the time of the Reformation? Previously, 
All the painting had been of so-called sacred or mythological objects. But the Dutch painters painted people working in their kitchens or out in the streets or fruit or trees. They were respecting the integrity of creation. That may be even more controversial. If we take seriously the teaching of the Bible that all humans are image bearers of God with a knowledge of God and now if they're unbelievers they have no right to have a true knowledge. It's inconsistent with their presuppositions. It's really our truth they're borrowing. But my friends we have to be slow to dismiss the work of our fellow men simply because they are not Christians. We are indebted, as Genesis 4 shows us, to Jabal and Jubal and Tubal Cain. And many of you have lived long enough to know that much work done by unbelievers may have integrity whereas much work by Christians can be wretchedly shoddy. The church must be careful not to trespass into areas into which it has little confidence, or competence, sorry. And I'm thinking here of preachers. I remember as a child hearing a minister in our church assuring us that man would never walk on the moon. The Bible says so. He was preaching from Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The Bible was not at fault. That good man's interpretation of Scripture was at fault. We need modesty. We need caution. These truths about creation are explosive. That's partly why the devil has assaulted the doctrine of creation so fiercely in the last 150 years. And I believe that the neglect of this perspective is partly why Christians are making so little impact in our culture. We have lost the idea of serving God in this world. A British Prime Minister in the 1830s, Lord Melbourne, was very annoyed by an evangelical preacher who was applying the word too personally. And he spluttered out, Things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade private life. But friends, we have reached the opposite today. When people are saying things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade public life, it has been a 180 degree turn. So that's our first biblical verse, the doctrine of creation. I'd like to turn to a second, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? We're coming here to the doctrine of providence. The Bible shows us a sovereign God who overrules all things, who shapes every detail of our lives, from the number of hairs on our head to the fall of a sparrow from the sky. The Shorter Catechism tells us that God has foreordained for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass. That's why Paul's question, what do you have that you did not receive can only be answered in the negative. We have nothing that we didn't receive. But the implications of sovereign providence are profound. 
particularly in the area of choice. Now choice is idolized today. It is the God of our world. As Christians, we are not against choice. The freedom to choose is precious. It is a weighty privilege. But we recognize, do we not, that our choices are not absolute. They are not made in a vacuum of total liberty. They are circumscribed in many ways. You did not choose what country you would be born in. You didn't choose the place of your birth. You didn't choose the time of your birth. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the circumstances of your upbringing. You didn't choose your social status. You didn't choose whether you would be male or female. You didn't choose what height you would be. You didn't choose what color of eyes you would have or what temperament you have. You didn't choose what abilities you would have. You didn't choose any of these. They were all given to you. They were all received. You or I didn't choose many of the events which have shaped us. The illnesses we've suffered. The tragedies we've experienced. The people who like us. The people who don't like us. The people who injure us. In the ultimate sense, you didn't even choose to be a Christian. God chose you. We were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And isn't the very word that we're thinking about this evening, calling, a significant word in that sense, because calling means that the initiative comes from elsewhere. From outside ourselves. When there's calling, there is someone to call. And our calling means that someone has called us. What do you have that you did not receive? So there's the givenness of God's sovereign providence. Now this is not to turn us into passive, apathetic zombies. The awareness of the providence of God doesn't paralyze us. It's the very reverse. It releases human energy. Is it not a striking thing that one thing which the Reformation stressed was that works have absolutely no place in salvation. None. What was the result? The greatest outburst of good works this world has ever seen, which reshaped continents and the history of the world. It doesn't paralyze us, you see. It liberates us. It sets us free. But the givenness of calling teaches us humility. This is Paul's application to some of the arrogant Corinthians. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so today the Christian can say to our society of spin and PR and boasting. What do you have that you did not receive? There is an equality. We are all recipients. It places us all on a level. The rich and the poor, the famous and the obscure, the strong and the weak, the children who are good with their hands, the children who are good with their brains. Those of us who have many talents. Those of us who have few talents. Wherever we are in society. Wherever we are in the church. We are where God has called us. And we are what God has called us. What is there to be proud of in that? 
It teaches us also responsibility. We are stewards entrusted with talents by our master. And we are responsible to him for how we use them or misuse them. They are not ours to do with as we please. We cannot hide them away. It is required of stewards, says Paul, that they be found trustworthy. But most of all, in our stressed, harassed, breakdown society, the providence of God teaches us to relax. To accept the God-ordained circumstances of our lives. Calvin is wise here. He says, each man will bear and swallow the discomforts and vexations, the weariness and anxieties in his way of life, when he has been persuaded that the burden was laid upon him by God. I can accept it if my Father has laid it upon me. We can accept who we are, each one of us, with our strengths and our weaknesses. I don't need to be the other person. I'm not the other person. That's not who God has made me to be. And I am to be who God has made me to be. And we can focus on what we are called to do in this life. There is so much to be done, isn't there? And isn't that paralyzing? As you look round and see all the things that need to be done, all the issues that need uh, to be dealt with, now, I, my way of coping with that is to freeze and to do absolutely nothing. But providence frees us from that. Yes, there are many things to be done, but this God has given me to do. And my task is to do what he has given me to do. And I make my contribution by doing what my calling and my gifts open out for me to do. I can't solve the problems of the world. There are lots of issues that are very urgent. But I'm not a thousand people. I, I may not have the gifts. I may not have the opportunities. It delivers us from self-contempt. It delivers us from false guilt. It delivers us from a frantic, burdened busyness. It's in the hands of our wise, powerful, sovereign God. And each one of us is to do the work that he has given us to do. And we have time to do the work that he has given us to do. He doesn't give any of us any more to do than we can do. Jean Veith says, above all, vocation is a manifestation of God's action, not our own. It is not another burden placed on us, but a realm in which we can experience God's love and grace. It is the way God is working through us despite our failures. Let's come to our third verse. Mark chapter 12, verse 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This has relevance to another current ideal in our society. The ideal of self-sufficiency. And it is an illusion. You know these speeches that people make at award ceremonies. I would like to thank all who are responsible for me being here this evening. I suppose I were to try to do that. 
Supposing I, I were to, to thank all those responsible for me being here this evening. Uh, my wife drove me to the airport in a car which she and I did not build, along roads which we did not construct, into an airport building which someone else designed and built. And I flew here in a plane which someone else designed and many hundreds of people made and the pilot flew and so on and so forth. And tens and tens and thousands of people are responsible for me being here this evening. To grasp the interconnectedness of humanity, our dependence our indebtedness in mind-bogglingly numerous ways. And that is no accident. That is how God has created us to function, for human beings to work together. And if they don't work together, there's no human race. There are simply strange fugitive figures in a jungle somewhere. And that means, my friends, that unbelievers in their tens of thousands benefit us, serve us, minister to us, and help us, whether they want to or not, whether they understand they are doing it or not. The key Old Testament example is Cyrus of Persia, a pagan king. And God called Cyrus my anointed. Listen to what he says to Cyrus in Isaiah 55.4. I'm sorry, Isaiah 45.4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus was accomplishing God's purposes. Cyrus was doing God's will. Cyrus was bringing benefit to God's people. He didn't know he was. He didn't mean to. It's not to his credit. He'll not receive any reward for it. It won't save him. But nonetheless... The sovereign God was using him. Or Paul's teaching in Romans 13. Referring to a corrupt, cruel government. Could say that the powers that be are ordained of God. And they are used for the benefit of mankind. And we need to recognize a more earthy level to the blessing of God. That God usually blesses us. Not directly, but through other people. And when you bow your head next and thank God for your daily bread. How many thousands of people were involved in that bread reaching your table? How does God give you your daily bread? How does he provide it? He does it through people. He does it through people. And you see, if we forget that, we will marginalize God. And we will say that God's blessings are either supernatural miracles up here or warm feelings in here. And I, I don't mean to speak pejoratively of that, but nothing else, nothing in between. And many Christians today are not seeing the astonishing kindness of God in the wonder of daily life. That the Lord is good and kind and merciful and he provides for us. The great commandment is love your neighbor. Have we narrowed that? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Does it mean to cherish warm feelings of affection towards a person? 
Can I only love those people whom I actively like? Or does it include helping? Serving? Is this not our calling in life? To love our neighbour? Is this not what pulls our multiple callings together? For we have multiple callings. We're called to be husbands and wives, parents, children. We're called to be brothers and sisters. We have a calling at work. We have a calling in the community. We have a calling in the church. Some of God's people are called to be unemployed or housebound or retired. But wherever we are, we are to pour out our lives in loving service. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I would put it to you that in every legitimate vocation, that in fact is what we are doing. The teacher is loving her neighbor. The farmer is loving his neighbor. The bus driver, the mechanic is loving his neighbor in that sense. And in that sense there is far more love in the world by God's kindness than we realize. One writer has suggested that we don't speak any more about the economy. We speak about interaction of vocations. I don't know whether Gordon Brown would, uh, would go for that. But you see, this is what our forefathers understood at the time of the Reformation. This gives purpose to daily living, to every, every Christian. This is the reason we get out of bed in the mornings, to love our neighbours. This is the reason we keep on doing what we do, in every place, in every way, whatever we are doing, whatever we are doing, we are to love our fellow human beings. And this helps us to persevere through the drudgery and the difficulty and the frustration of much of our work. What's the point? We're loving people. And that is no small matter. That is no insignificant thing. And there is no one here who is excluded from this noble purpose. And whatever your situation as a Christian, you can love your neighbor. And that is the great commandment. Second great commandment. And that brings us to our final text, Colossians 1.18. That in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. Because of course we haven't dealt yet with a profound reality and that is the fall and the fall has twisted damaged and distorted everything and it changed man's calling and God said in pain you shall bring forth children Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread. So work since the fall has this element of frustration, of exhaustion, of weariness, of dissatisfaction. And how evident that is in our godless world today. For many people, and we, we can't be idealistic about this. I have people in my congregation whose work, by any normal standard, is extremely tedious, repetitive, and boring. 
And how annoying would it be for them to hear pains of praise from me about the joys of creative work. Their work isn't creative. There are other people and they have become workaholics. They live for their work. In our age we have seen people looking to leisure as the great good. And they're bored to tears. And it's like ashes in their mouths. We don't know whether science is going to be our rescuer or our destroyer. Could be either. We're living in a day, certainly in Britain, when our culture, and what a misnomer that is, is degraded, corrupt, cruel, coarse, ugly. People are richer today than they've ever been. And internally, they're poverty stricken. Relationships are in ruins all over our nation. Even Christians are confused. Leland Riken says, We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play. At our worship. I read recently how somebody commented 30 years ago someone would say, I'm going to play a game of tennis. Now they say, I'm going to work on my backhand. It's all spoiled. It's all spoiled. The dream is a lie. Our society is sick and despairing. They don't know what to do or where to turn. And the things, the God provided things, work, leisure, relationships, these are gifts of God, but they're they're ruined because of sin, you see. And that, of course, is not the end of the story because God sent a Redeemer, His Son, to save His people from their sins. And not only so, but ultimately to restore the whole creation. For Paul says in Romans 8, 21, that the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And to carry out his purpose, the God-man after he accomplished salvation, was installed as king. And he himself said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Which led Kuiper to cry, There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, This is mine. And this is where we come in. And where our calling is key in the kingdom. For we are Christ's servants. We are his instruments. For bringing his victory to the world. How are we to do so? Let us be crystal clear about this. Our first responsibility. Our primary responsibility our massively overwhelming responsibility. The responsibility which dwarfs everything else is to proclaim the gospel. Now if we get that out of focus, we will end up with social activism or a social gospel. So that is our first, our great responsibility. That is the task of the Christian church to preach the gospel of salvation and to bring men and women by the power of God to Jesus Christ that they become new creatures in him. But our responsibility does not end there. 
Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we mean it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're interested in the doing of God's will on earth. And we are, says Paul, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And to take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, we are to stand in antithesis to humanistic thinking. We are not only to preach as Christians and pray as Christians and love as Christians, but to think as Christians. We are to love the Lord our God with all our minds. We are to seek to develop a distinctively Christ-centered understanding of every sphere of life. And every aspect of life. As Guinness says. Personally summoned. By the creator of the universe. We are given a meaning in what we do. That flames over every second. And every inch of our lives. We cannot for a moment. Settle down. To the comfortable. The mediocre the banal and the boring. There is no yawning in response to this call. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We do it, of course, as new people, as saints, Changed by Christ's power through the Spirit. I want, I want to hold a balance here. We need Christian thinkers. But they have to be, first of all, Christ-like people. If they're not Christ-like people, I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to hear them. They will do more harm than good. And a great danger for us is if we're involved in Christian activism is that the work itself takes over and the work becomes the cause. And we forget our walk with Christ and are nourishing our heart in his presence and worshipping and serving him. The salt and the light are only influential because they're different. You see, that's where many of our fellow Christians in America are in danger of going wrong. They have good ends. They have good motives. But more and more, they're behaving like the world. They're organizing like the world. They're adopting the strategies of the world. And we're going to do it through political influence and through this way and that way. One writer has said, and I think it's profound, the problem with Western Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. The problem perhaps is not that they're not where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be, what they should be. We do it in other words. And this is that which will keep us in the right path. We do it for his sake. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says in verse 24, to all of us, you are serving the Lord Christ. And it is this which makes all the difference. Scientists in the Middle Ages tried to find what they called the touchstone, a stone which would turn base metals into gold. They hunted for that stone for centuries. What a wonderful thing that would be. Everything it touched 
would turn into gold. And an early Anglican, George Herbert, wrote a poem about that. He called it the elixir. It's been turned into a hymn. You know it. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. And what I do in anything, to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. Then we don't often quote the next lines. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold. Not good. To do it for Christ. To do it for Christ. That's the stone that turns everything to gold, says Herbert. Even the sweeping of the floor. To do it for Him. Brothers and sisters, this is our reformed heritage. People who lived godly daily lives. Perhaps they weren't always as knowledgeable in past generations. Perhaps they weren't always as articulate about their faith. Certainly in the the land I come from, perhaps previous generations were too shy, too quiet. But they lived lives of godliness. In everything, in everything. A traveller in the 1800s came to Scotland. He was an early economist, interested in efficient working. And in the Highlands he was going along one day in his carriage and he saw an old man breaking stones at the side of the road. And he stopped and got into conversation with this old man. And he said... uh, who is your, I don't know what word he used, but it was, who is your supervisor? Man says, I don't have one. Who, who checks when you begin your work? Nobody. Who checks when you finish your work? Nobody. Well, the man said, what happens? The old man said, Thou God seest. What would that mean to the economy of our nation? Thou God. I don't need a time card. I don't need a supervisor. I'm in the Lord's presence from moment to moment. Our forefathers understood the glory of ordinary things. The glory of daily work. Whatever it be. Done for Christ done for his honour we need to understand that scripturally and teach it because it's still in the hearts of those created in the image of God I was struck hearing someone who was a New York fireman after September the 11th I'm sure you've reflected on that here were these buildings collapsing and fire and terror. Thousands of people were rushing out. At the same time, hundreds of men were rushing in into the death, the flames, and the hell of it all. And they talked to one of those men afterwards, and he shrugged modestly and he said, We were just doing our job. And I thought, Is that not a great? Is that not a great statement? Is that not a great thing for a Christian to be able to say? Is that not very close to what our Lord said? I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And dear friends, whatever your work and mine may be, this is our calling. To do it for our Lord and master just doing my job 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.